Well, happy Veterans Day. Uh, again, we definitely want to recognize our vets. We were happy to have the um, Nowensville breakfast yesterday here in this building, uh, recognizing vets and so um, and someone who's got a lot of family who are veterans of different um, um, wars and different um, times of, of uh, conflict. Uh, very thankful to our veterans. Also today is uh, Orphan Sunday, as uh, one of our elders, Jeff Williams, mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, and as I was praying, and as he has said, and as others have said, the fact that like, if you are in here and you are a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, just to kind of teach for a minute, it, it's not an option for Christians to care or not care for orphans. It is a command of the Bible that we are to care for orphans. And like I said, that looks different ways in different people's lives, depending upon life stages and life circumstances. But the fact and the call to care is a non-negotiable. And so some of the money that you give through our tithes and offerings, it goes out to help with some uh, orphan care. But if you would like to find some more ways to be... um, helpful right now, you can talk to Jeff Williams out at the Connect Center. But one of the specific things you can do, and I will ask you to do, is to pray for the Price family as they get ready to travel to um, China on December the 6th. December the 6th. Taking all family of six going to China. They'll come home a family of seven. And they're all going. So pray for them and uh, pray for Gideon as he prepares to meet his forever family. So uh, today we've got 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's where we're going to be. It's on page 258 in the Bibles that are around you. And I was tempted to call this sermon Raiders of the Lost Ark because that's what's going on. The, the ark has been lost, or really I guess it's been neglected or it's been forgotten. And now it's going to be brought back out. And so they're going to go, they're going to go get it uh, and they're going to bring it back out and somebody's like, well, what's what is the ark? Can you explain that again? Just in a nutshell, the ark is like a 45 by 27 by 27 box. It's gold on the outside, it's gold on the inside. There's cherubim. In fact, just look at your bulletin. On the cover of the bulletin is a picture of the ark. And what is inside of that box uh, were the Ten Commandments, um, a pot of manna, and then Aaron's rod that had, or his staff that had budded. That's what's inside. Of it, But the thing about the ark is that it is a sign, okay? It is a symbol of God's presence and power with his people. It was kept in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. That's the most holy area in the Jewish temple or before the temple, the tabernacle. And it is a sign of God's presence and power. And it's also a symbol of the covenant between God and his chosen people, Israel. That's why it's called the ark of the covenant, but like I said, it's been neglected. Um, we have not seen it except, from, except for one like, brief snippet of a comment in 1 Samuel 14. We have not seen it since 1 Samuel 7. Because uh, like, what had happened if you go way back to 1 Samuel 5? This is even before we began talking about Saul. What had happened way back in 1 Samuel 5 was that the Israelites... Had, had disobeyed God per usual, and God had caused them, or as a result of that, they had just gotten beaten like a, a, like a dog, but that would be kind of abusive. They had gotten really, really, they had gotten just destroyed in this one battle. 
absolutely destroyed by the Philistines. As part of the spoil, the Philistines took uh, the ark into their you know, control. And at first, the Philistine leaders were super excited to have the ark. They thought it was like a rabbit's foot. They put it with all the other you know, conquered kingdoms and their little talisman or little uh, idols. And they thought you know, it would help bring them good luck in future battles. And so they're traveling around. They're super excited to have it at first. But then through a strange series of events that began with their uh, idol Dagon falling down, his head being chopped off, and then a series of tumors and mice running rampant and ultimately death. The Philistines said, we don't want any more to do with this. They put it on a cart pulled by ox. There's no driver and just say, we'll see where it goes. And it starts making its way miraculously back towards Israel. It makes it most of the way and then takes a little stop at a guy named Abinadab's house. And there it has stayed, basically like in the back room amongst all the other junk and furniture, like we have in our basements and we have in our garages and we have in our attics collecting dust. That's what happened to this sacred piece of furniture that represented God's presence and God's power. It just sat there for decades. Until David. David comes to the throne. He is not like Saul. He wants the presence of God. He wants to know God and be with God. And so he wants to go get this symbol of God's presence. And so like any type A leader, he makes a plan and executes it. So he starts going down there to get it. But even as all that sounds great, right? Good motivation, good intention. He's doing the right thing. Still, when he goes, something happens. And it's something that shakes David to his core. But like so often happens in our lives, when something happens, it shakes us. It teaches David a valuable lesson. It teaches him that God is not controllable. That God is good, but he is wild. You cannot tame him. It teaches him these truths, a wonderful yet terrifying truth that God is beyond human comprehension, beyond evaluation, beyond control, that he is the potter, we are clay. He sets the agenda, he sets the rule, he is the Lord God, we answer to him, he does not answer to us. And so David learned through these series of events that we're going to talk about today, to properly respect the holiness of God, to fear Him, to revere Him. But he also learned that in God's presence, we should both shudder, but also rejoice. And we should dance. We fear and we rejoice. And that's what I think the whole point of this text is. It's a call to both David and then later the... the, Uh, later readers, even all the way down to us today, 3,000 years after this took place, all the people who've read this story in those years, it's a call to them and to us to learn to properly respect the holiness of God and properly respond to the holiness of God. So if you want to go ahead and fill in the blanks on your uh, sermon guide, those are the two points. Number one today I want us walking out of here better equipped to properly respect the holiness of God 
and properly respond to the holiness of God. And so we will do those in order, probably respecting the holiness of God. Let's get into the story. Let me show it to you. We'll start chapter 6, 2 Samuel, verse 1, page 258 in the black hardback Bibles around you. We will read the whole chapter today. So if you want to follow along, that would be helpful. 258 in the Bibles that are provided for you in the pews or in the chairs. Verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, which is another name for Kiriath-Jerim, which is where it was left. Went down there to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Lord of hosts, another word, and we sing in mortal, uh, a mighty fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth. That's what this is, Lord of hosts. Who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry. Because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And that literally means, like they called the place, the Lord's broken out against Uzzah. And so David was afraid of the Lord that day. So you've got 30,000 men. David's going down there. They're going to get it. It's a big deal. The symbol of the presence of the Lord is coming back in their midst coming back to Jerusalem, and so it's a big day. They're excited. It's a big parade. It's a big celebration. And so they've just got this massive, exuberant worship service going before it. And then all of a sudden, you can just picture it there, people going crazy. And then all of a sudden, just kind of the, the music stops, the laughter stops, the dancing stops, the celebration stops, because there's a dead man now. He's on the ground. Maybe he quivers for a minute. Maybe gasps for breath. And he's dead. And the first emotion that we see out of David here, verse 8, is he's angry. He's angry. Any of you in here ever been angry at God? I have. I know you have. Don't lie. Safe place. And it's because we don't understand God a lot of times. But we're in good company. David man after God's own heart is, gets angry at God because David didn't understand. He was trying, like we do a lot of times, to judge God based upon his own moral understanding, not God's. He was trying to be God and have God answer to him, which we do sometimes. And so David's looking at what's going on and he's thinking, you know, God, or saying, God, what are you doing? Like, this guy's trying to help you out here. 
The, the ark was about to fall, and so he's trying to protect it. What, why are you doing this? He's doing you a favor. And so David's appalled at this. I think a lot of times today we have this very high view of ourselves in the 21st century, and we think that we are like the first people to ever come across things in Scripture truths about God and be offended by them, be bothered by them. We assume, as one author put it, even if we don't like say it this way, that we have only recently achieved a measure of enlightenment sufficient to critique God for his judgmental ways. And so we'll take modern hot-button issues, homosexuality or something, or egalitarianism or, or gender transgenderism or gender confusion. And we think to ourselves that previous generations might have simply accepted these truths, but we're far more sophisticated than that. We are far more savvy than that. And we can see now these things for what they really are. They are wrong and judgmental. But David's anger here blows that assumption out of the water. David was offended at the way God acted. And he's not the only one in Scripture who's offended at God's truths, at hard truths. God is, as has often been said, an equal opportunity offender. And has been and will be as long as people are interacting with him. So Scripture does not show just ignorant men and women blindly following God. They show pilgrims who struggle to follow God when he offends their sensibilities. And we must learn to do that as well. Because our minds are warped. Our minds are fallen. We are sinful. And so often we accommodate our basis of morality to the prevailing culture of the world, whatever that may be. 170 years ago, conformed to the prevailing culture that said that black men were less than white men. Conformed, so many Christians did, to that wrong-headed sinfulness. We conform so often to the prevailing culture of the world and, and base our morality on that rather than on the Word of God. And so we develop a little morality based upon the small little 80 years of life that we're given. And then we try to judge the eternal omniscient God based upon that. Our limited finite understanding judging God and saying, how dare you? I mean, I'm, I've got like, I'm 20 years old. How dare you say things like this? Folks, this is a super simple thing I'm about to say. But we have to hear it. You and I are not God. We are not God. God is God. So God rules. He rules and makes the rules. And he is not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. 
He is not obliged to us. We are obliged to him. He does not exist to do our will. We exist to do his will. It does not matter whether he pleases us. What ultimately matters is do we please him? And there's no reason at all that he should meet our ideas of right and goodness. We are to meet his. He is God. We are sinful. Friends, we have got to learn to recognize God for who he is and not try to recreate him in our image. He is God and he's answerable to no one. And Sarah prayed, it is remarkable that we're not struck down now for the events of this morning on our way here. He's gracious. And so he's not answerable to anyone. But he's also not capricious. Like he doesn't just do things on a whim. Like this whole deal with Uzzah, all right? Like what Uzzah did. As mad as David may have been, this was Uzzah's and David's fault. Like God had given specific instructions on how the ark was to be treated. All right, in the, in the Torah, the first five books of the, the Bible that David commonly refers to as the law. Torah means instruction, law. So a lot of times they refer to it that way. So de- there's specific instructions in there. It says if you're going to transport the ark, you cover it with all these garments. All right, so you don't really look at it. It also says that you are to carry it on poles that the Levites, specifically of one clan, are to carry. You don't set it on a cart. You carry it by these poles. And if you touch it, because it represents the holiness of God, you will die. So this isn't like God's just like, oh, he did that. This is clear. It's in Scripture. It's written down. But they just disregarded it. So David puts it on a cart pulled by oxen, just like the Philistines did. And then when there's a stumble... And the ark starts to slide off. Uzzah reaches out to catch it and he drops dead because Uzzah wrongly assumed that his hand was less dirty than the ground. When, when you think about, like, has the ground ever disobeyed God? Has, is the ground guilty with sin? Did the ground rebel against God? Did the ground... No, no, the ground always obeys God. So the ground can't make the ark dirty or defiled, but a man's hand can. The holiness of God, the wickedness of mankind. J.D. Gurk pulls this all together by saying this. Uzzah did not understand like the, the holiness of God and the wickedness of himself. He did not understand this, so he tried to do God a favor. David did not understand this, so he got upset with God. Chances are we do not understand this, so we join David in his frustration. But the reason we do not understand the judgment of God is that we do not understand the wickedness of our sin. This is why we struggle with the concept of judgment, the concept of hell, the concept even of the cross. Because we don't understand the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. 
I mean, just think about the cross for a minute and what the cross says about the wickedness of sin and the holiness of God. Like for our sins to be atoned for, for us to be forgiven, Jesus, the Son of God, like this is so common, maybe if you are familiar in church, that this doesn't hit you. Let this hit you. Jesus, the Son of God, had to come to earth and be torn to shreds. The crucifixion is an unspeakable, brutal process meant to inflict the maximum amount of pain and showcase a person's shame to anyone watching. So a crucified person with holes in their hands and holes in their feet have to push themselves, pull themselves up just to take a breath before sinking back down. They've got to pull that up. And to watch this, the utter torment of watching it was almost unbearable. Like even the Romans, when they would crucify a woman, which they did, they would crucify her backwards so that you did not have to watch the torment on her face. And friends, this is the punishment that God himself took, second person of the Trinity, to purchase our freedom from sin, to purchase our salvation. It was brutal, and it was unbearable, and it was disgusting. And that's precisely the point. The reaction we have to the event as horrific as the crucifixion is the reaction we ought to have towards sin. The cross should remind us that our sin is unspeakably wicked. At its core, it's not merely transgressing a boundary. It's delighting in the wrong thing. Therefore, it's delighting, it's worshiping another God. It's hatred toward God. And God simply cannot allow an attitude of treason against him into his presence. And so we trust Christ and we trust his provision for our sin or we can trust ourselves and suffer eternally for our sin. That aspect of the gospel is truly that simple. That aspect. God is holy. Unspeakably. Terrifyingly. And we need to learn to properly respect the holiness of God. But we also need to learn to properly respond to the holiness of God. And that's number two in your notes. Properly respond to the holiness of God. And David learned this, like we do a lot of times, in two stages, two phases. He learned a little bit on this day. He learned the first, not even the first part, it's an incomplete part. But he starts to get a little bit of the fear of God. But it's incomplete. And so look at verse 8. This is where he's angry. Look at verse 8 with me. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. This is a Philistine that's sojourning there. 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And when it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And so verse 9, we see David is afraid. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And then three months later, verse 12, we see he is rejoicing. Both of these are part of the proper response to the holiness of God. But they both begin with this acknowledgement, this proper fear of the Lord. Not just afraid, like when we say fear of, you know, fear of the Lord, like when you see in the Bible, fear the Lord and keep his commandments, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and you see other places where it calls you to fear the Lord your God. What the Bible is talking about by fear, biblical fear is an awareness of the immensity of God. That's what Jesus says in Luke 12, chapter 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's God. He's the one who judges. He's the one who has absolute power. Fear him. And fearing God is not being terrified like chainsaw massacre, haunted house fear. It's to stand in awe of him. That he is the almighty creator. We're creatures. He is eternal. We're finite vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. He's sovereign and eternal. We are dependent. He's holy. We are sinners. And so it's only fitting that we should stand in awe of the eternal almighty creator God. And this is meant to lead us ultimately to verse 12, rejoicing. Not to leave us frozen in fear Like David in verse 9, he learns it in two phases. He learns God's not one to be trifled with, verse 9. Verse 12, he leads, that's awesome because he's for me. Like when he sees Obed-Edom, he sees, I mean, look at verse 12 again. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. So he's seeing God is doing this. God is blessing him and all that belongs to him because... Of the ark of God. So David suddenly makes this distinction. He, or this connection, he had thought the ark is so terrifying, I need to keep it away. The presence of God is so overwhelming, I need to keep it away. He puts it in a Philistine's house. He sees the Philistines start getting blessed by God. He says, he's not here to destroy us. He's here to bless us. But we've got to recognize him rightly. I went down there. It was all about me. I went down there. Yeah, I wanted God, but I kind of wanted to use that for me. And I was like, oh, I'll put him on a card. I'll do how I want. Like he's concerned with how we worship him. There's a right way to worship God. There's a wrong way to worship God. And so David makes this connection. God's not against me. With all this like 
terror that he is, all that, even as we saying, you know, awful, truly awful, A-W-E, full, that's what the real word means, and you sing, you can describe God as awful, not in the sense of bad, but full of awe. Yes, he's all of that, David recognizes. He's all-powerful, he's holy, he's terrifying, but he's also all in for his people. He's not against us, he's for us, he loves us, he's almighty, and he's all in for his chosen people. And so the fully-orbed fear of God that we're to walk in, it doesn't put us, you know, afraid over in the corner but it leaves us staggered. So you might think of it as like a, uh, if you were caught in a terrible storm in the midst of exploring an Arctic glacier, right? And so, that, I mean, this is something I want to do someday is explore a, a glacier. It's on the bucket list for me. And sometimes people look at the things that I like to do and they think, you know, Joe, you're in a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And I would probably say, you're right. And I think that's why I'm a Christian. Because there's some, there, there is nothing more terrifying and exhilarating than the God of the universe. Like if you stand on top of a mountaintop and, and let your feet hang over it and just kind of, you feel the fear of that, but the amazingness of that, that pales in comparison to the one who created that. And we were on the Appalachian Trail. John can remember this this year. And we were at a place called Charlie's Bunyan. Some of you may have hiked out to it. It's only like four miles away from the road. You can get out there and you can stand there. And John and Chad were standing there and they're looking at it. And they're thinking, that's great. That's beautiful. And I'm like, I want to walk out there on it and stand on it. And it was terrifying. The wind was blowing. And like, if I fell that way or that way or that way or that way or that way, I'm dead. If I fall this way, that's okay. So I was kind of hedging my bets a little bit in case it blew me over. But there's an amazing feeling in the midst of terror, yet coupled with beauty and splendor. And there's nothing, you can't get that in any more way than before the God of the universe. But back to this fear, this arctic glacier in the midst of a storm, adrenaline junkie who goes up there for that. You're there. Exploring this glacier and suddenly a storm blows in. Crazy storm. And you are about to be blown off the side of the cliff. But then you notice a cleft in the ice. Where you can hide, where you can find shelter. And so you go there. And even though you're safe, you watch the storm go by with trembling pleasure. And so at first there's this fear that this terrible storm... And this awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge. And you gain the hope that you will be safe. It's going to be okay. But not everything in the fear vanishes from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. Right? You're not going to die, but you're still sitting there watching the tremblingness of this, you know, with awe and with wonder. And thinking, I do not want to tangle with this storm. I do not want to be caught out in the midst of this and be an adversary of such a power. The fear of God is what's, it's kind of like what's left of the storm when you have that safe place to watch from right in the middle of it. The thrill of being in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. 
And so, friends, God, with all the power over the storms and the universe, all this terror that we speak of, all this might that we speak of, is the same God who is for you. All this power, all this might, all this glory, all this majesty that can leave you fearful of God in the right way is the same God who is for you. So he's the king, he's the judge, he's the authority, has authority, is authority over all heaven and earth and hell. But for the believer, God, the judge, has slammed the gavel down and said, not guilty on the basis of what Christ has done, his life, his death, his resurrection. But now connecting this to Orphan Sunday in particular, the judge doesn't just stand there after having slammed the gavel down. Now, biblically, the judge crawls over the bench, turns around and adopts you into his family, scoops you up in his arms, says, you're wanted, I want you, you're loved, you're mine forever. And now laughs over you in the midst of your silliness, delights in you, even as you disobey at times, because you are his. Almighty, all-powerful, all-terrifying God, delighting in you because he's made you his own. Alistair Begg describes this and this fear of the Lord as an awareness of the immensity of God that fills you with awe and wonder, but then also the awareness of the immensity of God's love for you. And he describes it kind of like a child, a child's fear of their father. And so here's what he says. It's the awareness of the fact That even though I'm such a rotten little kid, even though I do so many bad things, even though I've told so many lies and done so many wrong things and been such a disappointment to my father, he still loves me. If he cast me out forever, he would be justified, but he still loves me. And it fills me with awe and it breaks my heart in all the right ways. That's the kind of fear we're to have. He's almighty. He's all powerful. Yet he's for you. He sent Christ for you. He's adopted you into his family. You can live with confidence now. Not that he's out to get you, but that he's with you. Like far from getting ready to throw you off the cliff or off into hell. He's now watching over you to keep you safe forever. And it leads to joy. It leads to rejoicing. So David went, verse 12, and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Look at verse 13. Let's read the rest of the chapter. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, 
He sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. Now he recognizes God is holy. I'm not trifling with him. We walk, he's not even going like from here to the microphone right there. And he's like, we need to sacrifice. We need to atone for sin. We need to make, at least point forward to the ultimate atonement. Verse 14. So he's rejoicing. They're sacrificing. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. This is just a thin little linen covering. So he's, he's half naked, right? So David, and he's dancing with all his might. He's filled with joy. The one who can strike down Uzzah just for touching is for me. And he loves me. And he's with me. And his presence is coming into Jerusalem to take care of his kingdom, to provide for the Messiah, to provide for the anointed one, who is David at this point. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, it's going to say that three times, emphasizing she's connected to Saul. She looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart, just like her daddy. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. That was the aphrodisiac of the day. He's saying, let's be faithful to Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with worshipers of God. There's a celebration. God's presence is with us. And then all the people departed, each to his house. Verse 20, And David returned to bless his household. But Mishael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michelle, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by, my, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Mishal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And so when they go get the ark, they start carrying the ark properly. People are carrying it now on poles. They're not putting it on a cart behind an ox anymore. Because right fear of the Lord leads to right worship. When Mishal gets angry... She's saying that the king and his dancing, because David is joyous. He's filled with joy. He's dancing before the Lord. And Mishael is ashamed. She's mad. She says, this is embarrassing. That's not the way a king works. That's not the way a king lives. You should be, you know, you shouldn't be walking around in that linen ephod. You should have on your kingly robes. How dare you? And it's because Mishael thought, like a lot of us think, 
that joy is found in life by getting others to think highly of us. To be esteemed in their eyes. And so she thought, you know, if we do this right and if if he does this right, it's going to make people think really highly of me because I'm one of his wives. And so she just wants like to 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 build up our self-esteem thinking, you know, get people to praise you. And by connection, they'll praise me. And so Misha wants to wants to use David's position as a servant of the Lord, because David calls himself a prince, or better yet, a leader. He won't even call himself the king. He sees himself as a servant of the Lord. She wants to use that as a way to make much of herself. And we try to do the same as well. We'll take anything and we'll try to use it to make much of ourselves. We think that is the way that we will find joy. But what happens if somebody stops esteeming you? It's gone. And they will. But going back to our thought of glaciers and adrenaline junkies, why do people go and do those things? Why do they go to these places that make them feel small? Like our family's going to be in the Rockies in 10 days. We're going out to see Sarah's family. Her mom lives back behind Pikes Peak, about 9,000 feet. And you can see the Rockies and we'll be driving around the Rockies the whole time. No one goes to Pikes Peak or the Shanks went to the Grand Canyon this summer as part of their 50th anniversary. They sent a picture put it on Facebook at the, at the lodge on the North Rim. And Fred did not and Donna did not stand in front of the Grand Canyon and think that they were awesome. They stood in front of that and thought, that's awesome. And I'm very, very small. And they loved it. They love that feeling. I love that feeling. You love that feeling. That's why we go to the ocean. That's why we go to these crazy, amazing places. Because joy in life does not come from beholding a great self, but a great splendor, a great sight. And there's nothing that's greater than the Savior. And so joy in your life does not come by getting people to think much of you, but by you thinking much of God. That can't be taken from you. Beholding the splendor of the Lord. That will fill you with joy. So renew your mind on it. Plug in. Let Him mesmerize you, amaze you. And here's what else will happen. The right fear of God will free you from the wrong fear of people. The right fear of God will free you from the wrong fear of people. When you view God rightly, everything else pales in comparison. Doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not difficult. But you, be, you gain perspective. One final point and we'll be gone. When David's dancing around, what's he wearing? A linen ephod. And ephod's primarily worn by the priests. And here David has one on. And David's not putting this on 
arrogantly, you know, trying to say, look at me, I'm like a priest. He's doing everything in humility. He doesn't care what people think about him. He's dancing before the Lord. It's an audience of one. I don't care what they think. I'm dancing for the Lord. So he's not wearing it arrogantly, but he does have one on. And I don't want you to miss the glimpse of the king here in a priestly role. Because we'll see it again in prophecy, Psalm 110, Zechariah chapter 6. But then we'll see it again one day in person, in Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king. When the new heavens and the new earth come, this descendant of David will be our reigning king and our interceding priest forever and ever. And it's already started. And so let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would truly fill us with a proper respect of your holiness so that recognizing who you are in trembling would lead us to joy in how you treat us and how you love us and how you are for us. That even as C.S. Lewis made clear in his allegory, the Chronicles of Narnia, that Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. You are not a tame God. But you are good. And so, Father, overwhelm us with your might and with your power, with who you are. So that we might indeed, with the psalmist, Rejoice and serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Cause us to rejoice. In the name of the Lord, amen.